Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this inaugural lecture, Professor Paul Salkowski talks about understanding and treating anxiety. Um, I'm going to start by thanking, it's an inaugural lecture and it is traditional to thank all kinds of people, including my many research collaborators and my present absolutely wonderful team, team that I'm now enjoying working with, and the regional supervisors who've welcomed me into the region. Um, as, as a clinical psychologist running a course. But, and of course, I particularly want to thank you know, people who are sitting here, my family, um, two out of the three are here, the other one's revising for her exam in the morning, um, who essentially, you know, well, without whom, uh, none of what I do would be possible, and who've made it possible for me to work too hard, and, but also at the same time to have the benefits um, of the best family life I can imagine. So. Thank you to all of those people. I have all kinds of other people I'd like to thank, but I won't because it'll take the rest of the time. So today um, I'm going to offer you some relentless optimism, and that's because I believe there is good cause for optimism. I'm basically going to suggest to you that, ment that common mental health problems, really here I'm talking about anxiety, are entirely treatable. There is no such thing as a hopeless case. And this is unprecedented. We are in a, we're in a very different situation to where we were 50, 30, or even 20 years ago. So I'm going to describe, I'm going to draw lessons from this, I think, in terms of how our understanding of anxiety has developed, including, of course, some very self-important stuff. Because it's an inaugural lecture, so I'll have to tell you about my work. So I'll tell you quite a lot about my work and ignore all kinds of other people's work, which is equally important, and I stand on the shoulders of various people to, to, give, to bring these things today. And then I'm going to consider how these lessons can be taken forward into the future and give you some examples of how that works. So let's start with the history. Um, early psychological theories of emotion essentially said that physiology, that what went on in your body was important. So you know, according to the James, James Lange theory, we feel sad because we cry, angry because we strike, afraid because we tremble. So, so be the physical changes that we experienced were causing our emotions. And of course, Cannon disagreed and said, it's the other way around. We cry because the environment makes you kind of respond in a particular way. We cry because we feel sad. We strike because we're angry and tremble because we're afraid. That essentially largely became replaced by behavioral theory. So within my field, within clinical psychology, behavioral theory, and there was a working behavioral um, theory developed by a guy called Maurer, 1939, who basically said people get anxious, people have anxiety problems because they're classically conditioned, Pavlovian conditioned, to, to experience anxiety in relation to things which otherwise wouldn't matter to them. Now, the, the problem with the idea of conditioning producing anxiety is that if you don't recondition people, the anxiety goes away, it extinguishes. And so what Mara said rather cleverly is that, that actually something else clicks in, that when you feel anxious um, because it's conditioned, then you do stuff to make yourself safe. You escape, you run away, and so on. Uh, and that's great because it makes you feel better. Um, and that's a type of operant conditioning, so that it makes it more likely you'll run away or escape or whatever. And that also stops you from, it from extinguishing. And really, the developments that came from the 50s through to the early 80s really were, were followed that methodological behavioral idea. And that was extremely important. The thing that kind of suggested things were slightly different were some very nice experiments, or some not-so-nice experiments by Schachter and Singer. Not so nice because, like most social psychologists at the time, they deceived people. So they told people they were doing um, a, an experiment in learning. 
and they said, we're going to give you an injection of vitamins. Only it wasn't vitamins. It was adrenaline that they were giving injections of, um, which, of course, makes your heart go fast and all the rest of the things that kind of go along with anxiety and also other emotions. And what they then did was they then, they then got people to fill out a questionnaire. And this was actually where the experiment started, because the questionnaires, different types, different, different experiments. But one of them, for example, asked, you know, after your mother married your father, how many women did she sleep with? Was it 10, 50, or 200? Um, and... In the room with you was a stooge, was somebody who was working for the experimenter, and that stooge could do various things. Now, you've either had an injection of adrenaline, which is making you feel all pepped up, or you've had an injection of saline, which doesn't impact on you. And then this stooge starts to do things like, looks at the question and says, these bastards, what are they doing? How can they ask this? And got really angry. And interestingly, if you had an injection of adrenaline and not saline, then you became angry. If you had the saline, you didn't get angry. Equally, in, in, in other conditions, this stooge would say, these guys are so stupid, they call themselves psychologists, it's so funny, became excited, and again, the same thing happens. And the lesson from that was it wasn't the physical symptoms that were giving, making people feel anxious or, or excited or angry, um, it was what it meant to them. And you needed both the physical symptoms and the, and the meaning. And that kind of takes us really through to the model which is most influential at the moment, which is the model of Beck. Now, the model of Beck um, is that it's not things that happen, it's the meaning these things have that produces emotional responses. Now, I thought the best way to demonstrate this would be to actually choose one of you in the audience to tell me about the most embarrassing moment you can recall in the last two years. I don't know if anybody would like to volunteer to... No, that's a, um, let's see, who will I choose? Um, no, I'm not going to do that, but actually, when I did that, can I just... Did anybody feel a little bit anxious? <laughs> Okay, just think what went through your mind when, when you felt anxious there just now. What went through your mind? Does anybody tell me what went through their mind when they felt anxious? Hide. Sorry, hide. Because what did you think was the worst thing that would happen if you, you know, if, if I did get you to tell your most embarrassing moment, which this might be now, in fact. <laughs> um, but what, what do you think was the worst thing that could happen? Yeah, so I tell you. Which is. <laughs> <laughs> so you feel like you make a fool yourself. Okay, so so that, and that's the cognitive theory of emotion in action. It actually says that it's, it's, it's not, not, not what actually happens, but what you make of it and what it means. And then there's all kinds of ways of unpacking that. So that's the cognitive theory of emotion, but not of abnormal emotions. So the, notice that that's of any emotions. It isn't, it isn't just abnormal. In fact, what Beck said is that actually the, the meaning you have would... You, would um, would, would, would kind of then impact on the emotional experience. So, for example, if, one, if somebody here thought, I've always wanted to say in public my most embarrassing moment, and it's one of my great dreams, then you might feel happy if I picked you to uh, say that and so on. If you thought, actually, this is a bit of a damn cheek, how on earth could he ask us to talk about our most embarrassing moments? Then you might feel angry because I'm breaking the rules, uh, and you might feel depressed and sad. Well, all, all my moments are embarrassing, and my life's like that, so you might feel depressed. So, so, so the notion is that actually the same event has different meanings for different people, and the meanings are what give you the emotional response. Um, and this is where I try and get the technology to work, and I'm going to show you an example, no, I'm not from that. I'm going to show you an example that, 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 that is related to social phobia, where people are afraid of social things. And this is the kind of image that people have in their minds sometimes when they think about going into a particular social situation. So this is a, an example. Soda, 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 soda. 
Hmm. Dr. Pepper. What's the worst that could happen? What are we gonna do here? We're gonna have to cut him out of his pants. What? Don't worry, kid. We just get these out of here. We'll be all right. Uh, yeah, what do you want to do? The underwear is gonna have to come off. Take the underwear off. Take the underwear off. It's all right. Sorry about that. That's it. Step aside. What naked kid coming through? Come on, make the hole. Hello? Hey, guys. Who on TV? Up there. Rescue workers have just taken a young boy from a school where he was trapped in a pile of clothes. You're even on mad class! butt naked What's wrong with him? Okay. So, and the suggestion is that when people anticipate things going wrong, that makes them anxious. I can't think why. Um, and... Yeah, people with social phobia, for example, frequently when they're anticipating social situations, have images of that kind uh, and become very frightened of that. So, the cognitive behavioral theory of anxiety disorders, and that's the one essentially I'm going to be talking about the rest of the time, suggests that anxiety is a result of perceived threat. There's a belief that something bad is happening. And, and for the person experiencing, for example, the idea you're going to have a heart attack is going to be just as unpleasant if you believe it, if you are having a heart attack or if you are mistakenly thinking that the symptoms of anxiety are a sign of a heart attack, which happens in panic. And factors which maintain exaggerated threat beliefs are therefore involved in maintaining anxiety. And these factors include a range of things, but particularly something called safety-seeking behavior, um, which is, is essentially a concept which dealt with the thing that used to be called the neurotic paradox. What was the neurotic paradox? The neurotic paradox was was, well, we kind of know that people with panic attacks um, be, you know, believe they're going to have a heart attack or faint or die. And that's, of course, you know, that's, that's there and it's prominent. But for many years, people have repeated panic attacks and they don't die and they don't have a heart attack. And so, so why do they still believe it? Is it because they're stupid? And the answer is, well, no. It's actually because they do things to make themselves safe. And so when you go into the supermarket and you feel you're having a heart attack, you sit down or you lie on the floor or you take a Valium. And... Afterwards, instead of thinking, well, I didn't have a heart attack, so it isn't going to happen, you think, that was lucky, that was very close. Next, I've got to be careful, not get, get so far, and it might happen next time. So it becomes hundreds of examples of near misses, almost actually dying, and so on. A range of other factors, I'm not going to go over them in detail. One of them I'm going to show you in a moment, which is selective attention. I want to show you just how extremely powerful attention is. And sometimes when we're doing therapy with this, we talk about looking for trouble. I don't know if anybody knows what you find if you look for trouble. Anybody got anything? I think you probably... And imagery, we've actually seen a little bit of imagery. We know that there are images particularly associated with traumatic memories. Um, there's something called emotional reasoning, which is where you think, well, you know, uh, I'm afraid, so this must be dangerous, and so on. So the what the theory we're using to apply in treatment that we've developed really over the last 20 years is the idea that events and situations, that might be in somebody who suffers from OCD and intrusive thought. For a panic patient, it might be a palpitation. For a social phobic, it might be somebody glancing at them in a way that may be critical or could be interpreted in that way. If these events and situations are interpreted in a particularly negative way and the person believes that, that produces a range of reactions, one of the most obvious of which is to feel anxious. If you feel under threat, then you feel anxious if you believe yourself to be in danger, but also safety-seeking behaviors and selective attention and so on, which have the effects of maintaining the negative interpretations. And sometimes 
um, actually making the events which, or the situation which bothered you worse. And, and a good example of that um, is, is, is thought suppression. Most people with OCD have very unpleasant thoughts, such as the thought of putting a needle into a baby's eye. Now, if you were to have that thought and were to attempt not to think of it, try not to think of it now, well, you know what's going to happen. And actually, it's going to be worse because somebody didn't tell you to do that, so the more you fight it, the worse it is, and you think it means something very sinister as far as you're concerned. Okay, so what I'm going to do is show you another piece of video um, which, which picks up on the power of, um, the power of attention. So this is, you have to concentrate for this, please. So concentrate carefully because you have to do something. This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? The answer? 13. 13s have it. The answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? <laughs> How many people saw the moonwalking bear? In case you're wondering, it, the, the message is, don't hit cyclists. Um, okay, so, now, that's an example of what happens if you are tending to one thing and how you can completely miss other things. And the other thing, the other experimental evidence, very clearly, is that when people, for example, um, are afraid that there's something wrong with their heart, as in panic disorder, they become super good at telling you what their heart is doing, much better than the rest of us. And there's a kind of theme here. And the theme is that, really rather excitingly, anxiety disorders are not characterized by something that's missing, a deficit or something wrong with people's brains, but actually are characterized by people doing things you know, rather too hard. They're actually you know, working too hard to see what's going on. They're, they're behavioral excesses, which means, and they're usually within the person's control to a degree, and so actually, if people can be helped to deal with those, perhaps their anxiety problems might go. The other thing is that, now, I, I'm, I'm not a great fan of the, 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 use of the blind use of diagnoses, but one of the things that diagnoses do is they don't tell you what a person's problem is. The only way you can tell what a person's problem is is by listening carefully to what they say. But they do tell you where you should look. Where you, you know, because if somebody has a problem with bulimia, that's rather different in terms of what you should be talking about than if they have a problem with panic. And the diagnoses that we have actually all link into particular types of beliefs, which then drive a whole set of other reactions. So phobias typically are the idea of imminent danger from an identifiable situation. So the height phobic beliefs, for example, the building will collapse. They don't believe that normally, but when they're at the top of the Eiffel Tower, then they often do believe that if you can get a height phobic up there. Panic disorder, people are misinterpreting the signs of uh, their, their own anxiety feelings as a sign that some terrible thing like a heart attack is going to happen. And interestingly, hypochondriasis, health anxiety, as better described, which we'll be talking about later, um, actually, actually is it's the same kind of thing, that there's a bodily sensation, but it's not that you're going to have a heart attack right now. It's that you have the first sign of heart disease, which will be horrible, and you've got to do things before then, like you've got to check your um, symptoms and go to see a doctor a lot and so on. And so, 
each of the anxiety disorders that we work with um, actually have a characteristic set of beliefs. And there's a whole mountain of excellent evidence now to show the specificity of these anxiety disorders and also the fact that when people have more than one, they often have more than one set of threat-related beliefs. Now, some people are sceptical of this. I, I doubt if this audience will be, but anyway, just in case anybody is, there's the, there's, there's the, the idea that, okay, this works, this idea that, that you're seeing a normal anxiety problem that gets, or a normal anxiety reaction which gets exaggerated to the point of becoming a disorder. It's fine for some things, but what about... Yeah, things where, where people do stuff which seems very weird. And, and if we take obsessive compulsive disorder, a disorder that I particularly like working with, um, uh, it, it looks kind of ununderstandable. I mean, let's take one of the things that a lot of people with OCD believe, which is that if they think something it will happen, it's sometimes called thought-action fusion. And Ross Shaffron knows lots about it. So, so and in thought-action fu thought fusion, you know, people believe if they think the mother will die, their mother will die as a result of them thinking that. How many people here believe that, that if you think about a thing that it will then happen. No hands? Okay, right. Well, that's fine, so you're going to find the next bit easy. So please, everybody take a pen out and make sure you've got a bit of paper in front of you. And what I'm going to ask you to do is to think of the person that you love most in the world. If there's a big long list or if you're sitting next to your husband and you might be worried about yourself, then yeah, be careful. But what I'd like you to do in a moment is when you've thought of the person you love most in the world... What I'd like you to do is to write the following. Wait till I've finished before you write it. I wish that, and then you put the name. Would be violently filled today. <laughs> Just write that down right now. <laughs> I hope that's my name. <laughs> okay, so, right. Shush, there's not much time. So, can I just check? How many of you have written it down? The true psychopaths are here. <laughs> okay, no, not at all. Okay, those of you who didn't write it down, it's called avoidance. And, and, and you know, clinically, that's what we'd call it. Okay, those of you who wrote it down, I'd like to winkle out the cheats, please. Who cheated? Now, cheating can mean things like, I didn't write the person I love most down in the world. I didn't write my, the name of my son down because he's, he's little, but I wrote my husband's name down, so that was all right. <laughs> So, so it only cheats in that kind of way. Please, let's see if anybody cheated, wrote a different name down, um, didn't write. No, that's good. Okay, very few cheats there. How many are intending to do something about this later, like rip it up, score it out? Let's see your hands, please. And that would be called neutralizing. That would be kind of compulsive behavior in OCD terms and so on. Um, and how many of you felt anxious when you were writing it, those who did write it? Let's see your hands. Okay, and again, so even people who've done it lots of times find it very anxiety-provoking. This idea that... Yeah, that, that thought-action fusion, this, 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 this um, idea that, that, that thinking someone will make it happen is not so weird and abnormal. And here today, we're in a jolly fine, le well, jolly fine lecture, jolly fine lecture theatre, and we're, you know precisely why I asked you to do what I just asked you to do. That is not, of course, the experience of people with OCD. The experience of people with OCD is that, for example, you know, they have this, uh, you, you take a woman with a, a three-week-old baby, and you know, she loves this baby very much, but it hasn't slept very much, and so she hasn't slept very much. And you know, at three in the morning, as it's dark and rainy, as it is all the time at the moment, isn't it? The, the, you know, the, the baby finally goes to sleep, and so as she tiptoes away, it starts to cry again. And in her head, she just wishes the little bastard would die. Stop breathing. Now, she didn't mean that, but, but that's what came into her head. And think about how she feels, and take the discomfort that you might feel 
writing that down. Multiply it by 2 million, and that's what OCD is like. Okay, so let's talk about treatment. So how have effective treatments uh, developed? Now, I'm going to talk about an embarrassingly boring subject in a way, which is specific phobias. And, it, and specific phobias are very interesting because they provide a test bed for all kinds of other things. So I've done a little bit of work on them in the past. Um, now, in the good old days, um, a guy called Joseph Wolpe, 1958, um, two, two years after I was born, basically he did cruel things to cats. And, and he, what he did is he induced a thing called an experimental neurosis. And the way it worked is he fed a cat in a room, and it's fine. Then you give the cat an electric shock in that room, and guess what happens when you get it back to that room? It won't go there. The cat has developed an experimental phobia. Okay, and what Wolpe then did, and the thing that was different about what he did, was he said, well, let's get rid of it. Now, there are all kinds of theoretical junk. There were really good theories at the time, but the theories that he had are now completely ruled out. But his practical, his practic what he, he practically showed was that, that if you feed the cat a long way away from the room you shot it, it'll eat, and that's fine. And then as it moves closer and closer, if you, if you repeatedly feed it closer and closer, eventually it will lose its anxiety in that situation. And that led to a treatment called systematic desensitization, which was revolutionary at the time. It involved you know, training the phobic in use of a counter-conditioning response, which was typically relaxation, but assertiveness or, or sexual excitement would do, and I'm not joking. Um, they set up a detailed hierarchy. They presented very slight increments in, in things that bother people. So you start with a, you know, if you're worried about spiders, you start with a tomato top or a picture of a tomato top and move up. You don't allow the anxiety to break through uh, as you repeatedly present it. And you, for 80 sessions or more, and it's fantastic. Basically, 30% of people, 30%, you get 30% improvement in phobias, which was a breakthrough because at that time, the leading psychotherapy was psychoanalysis, which required seven years, three times a week, and don't expect to get any symptomatic relief. <laughs> that was then. What has happened now? The thing that's happened now is very different. And this is you know, basically um, single, one-session treatment. Actually, it's better than one-session treatment. Lars Jörnerst, uh, my very good friend from Sweden, um, yeah, basically developed a one-session treatment that involved simply confronting things, confronting the things you're afraid of in a very particular kind of way. And it's better than self-administered exposure, and I'm going to show you that in a minute because I was involved in that work, and it's also highly effective done in groups, and so he's joking that he's doing quarter-session treatment, not 80-session treatment. This is, um, this is basically, we simply compared one-session treatment done in Lars Joran's way, basically getting people to familiarize themselves and, and pick up on the, their reactions and deal with them, as opposed to exactly the same stuff presented in a treatment manual. These days it would be a computer, but this was 1991. Here's the behavioral avoidance. What this means is this is how close people can get to a zebra tarantula. Um, and basically, eight means that they're the other side of the room and they're looking at it, having got in the door. Twelve, uh, sorry, 14 means they've picked it up and kept it in their hand for two minutes. Okay, before treatment for the one-session treatment and, and the self-exposure, pretty, pretty much the same. The self-exposure people improve a bit, but nothing like as much. Um, as the people who have the one-session treatment, 78% of whom not only get rid of the problem in a, single, um, in a single session, but stay better a year later. Um, yeah. Now, why am I telling you this? Because you know, it's nice to know we can treat specific phobias, but it's not fantastically important. But how did we do it? That's the question. How do we go from Wolpe 50-plus years ago to where we are now? 
And the answer, I think, lies in the idea of empirically grounded um, um, therapies. And this, I think, helps us understand why it is that cognitive behavior therapy essentially took over the world of psychotherapy, that why psychotherapy has changed radically from something dominated entirely by psychoanalytic approaches to something dominated entirely by cognitive therapy approaches. And it's not something just about CBT. CBT fits well with a pattern, and the pattern's this, that the people who, the people who develop theories, people like Beck or Woolpe or my good friend and colleague David Clark and Jack Rackman, people like that, um, and indeed Freud in, a, in an earlier stage, you know, were, were people who listened to what their patients said. They were interested in phenomenology and devised theories which, which were modified by what people told them. And that's very important. To, in terms of theory, that's absolutely crucial. The thing that Woolpe introduced was that you could measure what was done. Now, that was regarded as obscenity in 1958, and he was much criticized for that because the suggestion was that you shouldn't measure the effects of psychotherapy, and that's long gone. The, the other thing is that, of course, theory involves outcome research, but outcome research, the fact that treatment works, don't, doesn't tell you anything about the theory or tells you very little about the theory, which is why, of course, yeah, so Woolpe was very clear about this, um, that, what he, that the theory he had, which was a theory of transmarginal inhibition and reciprocal inhibition, you know, could be wrong, and indeed it turned out to be wrong. Um, and that's what Lazier and Earth's work, amongst others, has shown. So we don't develop our theory by doing good treatments. So what, how do we do it? Well, the answer is we do a whole range of experimental studies and related research, and we look at what's actually going on in people who have particular problems, like obsessional problems and panic. Uh, and that feeds both into clinical practice and improves theory, and that is the thing which CBT is spectacularly good at, at understanding what is going on, devising experimental studies in which you can actually not just say, well, here's something that goes with something, but if we do this, then something else happens. Uh, and that's the thing that has really brought us forward. The thing that's going to change the future is, is something else, though. The thing that will change the future um, is incorporating personal experience um, and this thing that we call evidence-based patient choice. And in the modern health service right now, we are moving towards a position not just of, of, of patient choice, but evidence-based patient choice. I could talk about that endlessly, but I won't. But it's actually the most exciting development, I think, let me give you one example of this. I, I was very lucky to be invited to go to a, a, an OCD clinic in Bangalore. It was part of, part of a conference I was at. And in, in that clinic, I sat in on a couple of people who were seeing my, my colleague, Janard and Reddy. And um, this man arrived, and he, he came in, and he had a big bunch uh, of papers. And, and he, he, he said, well, Dr. Reddy, the reason I'm here is because of these websites. And there were two websites. Um, there was the NICE guidelines for OCD, and there was Ashley Fullwood's OCD UK um, website. And, and he said, I read this on the internet. I was living in the north of India. I've moved to Bangalore, so I can get evidence-based treatment. Now, if that happens in India, that is going to happen. That is happening um, in Avon and Wiltshire and other places. And what we need to feed into that is we need, as NICE does, to feed in outcome research. We also need a better the patients that we work with to have a better understanding of what's going on. And one of the ways of doing that, but not the only way, is through clinical guidelines and the work of people like OCD UK have mentioned. So that's my general background. Let's talk about some examples of what I'm talking about. So I've given you this idealized vision of essentially a blending of clinical art and clinical science, which is, I think, what good cognitive behavior therapy is. But let's see some examples. Well, I'm going to talk first about panic and agoraphobia, where we turned treatment 
in failure into success way back in the 70s, late 70s. I'm also going to use that to talk about making treatment more accessible, which is something that's become very important. Now, back in 1979, when I started this work with David Clark, exposure was king. Basically, you took your agoraphobic patient for up to 60 hours into places where they were frightened, and you kept them there. And if you did that, then again, you got about 40% improvement for most people, unless they had panic attacks. And if they had panic attacks, they didn't get better, because the panic attacks kind of rekindled their fear. And so what David Clark and myself did was we developed a cognitive theory of panic, um, and... We tested it in various experimental ways. I haven't got time to tell you about that, but just to say we then tested the treatment that flowed from that understanding, and we compared the best available drug treatment at the time, which was a chemical called imipramine, an antidepressant, but we also compared it with a psychological treatment, which is known to be helpful, a very special type of relaxation, as well as the cognitive behavior therapy, which was very focused on changing the misinterpretations, which we thought were key to panic. And... What you found was that if you look at a waiting list, then people typically don't get better. If you, look, if you give them applied relaxation, which again was devised by Lars Jernus, the Swedish guy I talked about, they get actually better than if you give them nothing, but just as well, they do just as well as people who take imipramine. And imipramine was jacked up to high levels, and actually people took it for six months, and they improved further. Um, not as much as people who had the very focused cognitive behavior therapy, uh, and in fact, when you then discontinue the imipramine, there's a bit of a fallback, and the cognitive behavioral therapy people continue uh, as they were. Now, one of the things that was said to us at that time was this is a very expensive treatment, because basically Paul Shalkovsky's is a very expensive <coughs> commodity. David Clark is probably at least as expensive. So, <laughs> and the imipramine is a very cheap, cheap drug. Indeed, as are is Prozac, which is probably the preferred treatment now. So, so actually, although you've shown it works, we shouldn't bother using it because it's too expensive. And the nice, the, you know, nice, of course, is interesting, you think. So what we did was they decided, okay, rather than trying to give 2,000 people the treatment, we said, let's give a similar number of people the treatment. Let's keep the treatment really strong, but let's try and deliver it in a different way. And the reality is, if you're doing a therapy like cognitive behavior therapy, about half to three quarters of what you do is bullshit smoke and mirrors that we and, and, and it's kind of stuff that we don't really kind of yeah we don't it's probably not helping people but it's difficult to know which is the half that's useful and which the half isn't useful so what we did was we tried to put as much of the stuff that we thought wasn't fantastically useful into self-help booklets um, and then we used guided self-help and so we did five sessions of treatment with the workbooks in between and we compared that to the full treatment and a wait list, because you kind of want to know what the benchmark is. And to our great delight, the, the people who had the brief treatment do just as well as the people who have a long treatment, because it's the same treatment. And this has been our strategy, really, from that point, to try to deliver the best possible treatment in the most economical possible way. It's not necessarily easy. So I was a therapist on this trial, and I can tell you that after a lot of those therapy sessions, I had a headache, because it's very, very hard work to do that, but it works. Now, I'd already mentioned that, you know, that, that in, with agoraphobia you could treat them unless they had panic, but actually after David and I did this work uh, with panic, we then moved to the opposite position that we could do really well with panic, but actually the people who had agoraphobia as well didn't do nearly, didn't do nearly as well, so we're kind of the opposite, but at a lower baseline. So, um, what we decided to do was try and work out not only whether we could get a treatment to work, but actually what was really going on. Because this thing that we call exposure, where you get people to confront things, you know, feel the fear and do it anyway, 
what on earth is it actually doing? So, what we said is, well, from a cognitive theory, rather than from a behavioral theory point of view, prolonged exposure, maybe what it does is it allows people to discover the things they're afraid of don't happen. If you keep people in a supermarket for 60 hours, well, perhaps they'll eventually get the idea that, you know, if they don't leave, then nothing bad will happen. Although it doesn't always happen, and it probably doesn't happen, because you know, if you're afraid of falling over, for example, you might hold on to the supermarket or onto your husband. Um, and, and actually then you think, well, I didn't fall over, but that's because I held on, or because when my heart pounded, I sat down, and so on. So we think, basically, that you have to target both the beliefs that people have and these, these behaviors that occur within situation in a way that's specifically designed to help people disconfirm things. So, for example, if I'm afraid of falling over, if I'm suffering from panic attacks, I'm afraid of falling over, my legs feel shaky. And when my legs feel shaky, I tend to not to stop them from collapsing. Um, and therefore, afterwards, I think I didn't, my legs didn't collapse. Now, in exposure, you just get people to stand there for a long time. If you're doing a clever thing called a behavioral experiment, what you'll actually do is you'll persuade the person to try it out and see how things are really working, which might mean instead of stiffening your legs, you relax your legs. Do that, and then stand on one leg and jump up and down and see if you can make your leg collapse. And if it doesn't, you know it's not going to happen. Now, that, we did that in two studies, basically. Um, and we did a brief, very tightly controlled study to pick up on the theoretical issue. And the, 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 again, I'm not going to talk about the mechanics of psychological science, but, but the problem is if you do treatment studies, things get messy. You know, life happens and, you know, and so on. So you really, if you want to show that a mechanism in action, what you've got to do is you've got to show it in a very short time. So we did that, but then we thought we'd better also see if what we did generalized out of this rather small, neat I I little bit of experiment to something a bit bigger. So this was back in Oxford, and here's what we did. So here's both experiments in, in one. So what we did is we started off, we started, you know, by definition, it was people who were housebound. So we had to start at their house. And we started at their house, and after they'd consented and been prepared, then we asked them to do what's called the behavioral walk. And the behavioral walk is this, that we say, if you can, I'd like you to come out of your house down to my car, and if you can, I'd like you to, to allow me to drive you to Merton Street. This was in Oxford back in the day. Um, and if you can, I'd like you to get out of the car. Now, I'm taking anxiety ratings and belief ratings as we go. But if you can, I want you to get out of the car and walk to the end of Merton Street. And if you can, I want you to cross the high street without me. I'm now in the car. Um, and then you're going to go into the covered market. And if you can, you're going to go through to the Clarendon Centre, which has mirrors in the ceiling, which are really horrible if you're agoraphobic. And then if you can, you need to get on the bus. And if you can, you need to go back to the Warnford, which is where I was working at the time. And if you can, by the way, you're not agoraphobic. Um, <laughs> so, and, and what happens is that most people actually stop after... Um, yeah, after, after, you know, when they get to Merton Street, just about. And there was one person, and I remember this is one of the few men we had in the study, who did actually manage it, and he was, uh, we thought he wasn't going to make it, because, yeah, he was so anxious at the beginning, I thought, well, he's going to stop. We got to Merton Street, and, he, and I told him what to do. He said, right! And he, well, he did a Forrest Gump, I know you've seen the movie, <laughs> but he headed off, and, and, and actually, we waited the, the amount of time we was supposed to wait, and he didn't come back, so we went to there, and we found him, at the hospital, smoking a cigarette, saying it was the worst experience of my entire life. <laughs> so, and of course, we couldn't include him in the trial because he, 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 you know, that was kind of one of the bases that we treated him anyway, let me be clear. Okay, so we're testing whether they're agoraphobic and how bad they are. And then what we do is we do a five-minute behavior test. And this is a bit gentler. So what you do is you, the person chooses a situation they could do, like going to Sainsbury's for five minutes. All they have to do is sustain it for five minutes. And we do that before and after an experiment. And in the experiment, we either get people to go somewhere else for 15 minutes, 
uh, and just stay there, but give them an explanation based on behavioral strategies, or we get them to go into that situation and test out their fears, for example, by hopping up and down on one leg, doing behavioral experiments. So we're basically similar amounts of exposure, but just done for 15 minutes, and then the next day they repeat the little, behavior, the little behavioral test. Okay? So, and then, of course, for the treatment bit, we then give them extra treatment and so on. So this, the first bit is simply standardized little behavioral test, 15-minute exposure of either type, and then repeat the standardized test. And what happens is before, this is anxiety, we have other measures too, it's published a few years ago. Um, before they go and they're anxious, they get anxious when they're in a situation and they stay anxious. That's before, after the little behavioral experiment um, thing, that's the people, that's how much anxiety the people who did the behavioral experiments experienced, that's how much people who just stayed in there, just did the exposure. So, it looks like that just staying in is massively enhanced by things, little behavioral experiments designed to shift beliefs. Now, this was, of course, this is the pure bit. This is the bit that tells you, you know, it really kind of, you know, that the, the process works. But we did then the, the treatment bit. So they continue in the, in, the, in the protocol, and they do an hour of treatment planning with a therapist after they've done this little behavioral experiment. And then they do a total of three hours in the supermarket or, you know, in, in situations either using a cognitive approach or using a behavioral approach. But they're equally um, spending amount of time, uh, uh, spending about, about, sorry, about three hours uh, in situations that make them afraid. And they were also asked not to change their lifestyle period, one of these things that we do in, in vain attempts to keep control. There were no, the, the, the basically, the people that we tested, they were the same in almost everything. But here's what happened. Now, here's, that's before and that's after. And this is agoraphobic avoidance. This is a self-rating of agoraphobic avoidance. So basically, in terms of clinical improvement, big, big clinical improvement in experimental condition, not in the control. That looks like a shock. Why isn't exposure working? Except you've got to remember that exposure to actually produce any significant effect typically needs 20 hours. We, would, we have three hours. So these guys did much better. And that's true also of how many panic attacks they're having. It's also true of, of the steps in the behavioral walk. Four is leaving the car at Merton Street and walking one lamppost. Ten is getting the bus back home, uh, getting the bus back to the hospital. So here's, this is your, your cognitive group. They're initially the same as the, the control group, but at the end of it, yeah, they're, 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 they're essentially completing the course. These guys are not changing, the ones who had the pure behavioral thing. But maybe they're all Forrest Gumps. Maybe we just got them to do that Forrest Gump thing. So the additional thing we did was did anxiety ratings. And what I'm going to show you is the maximum anxiety experience. So there's baseline. And as you expect with people with severe anxiety, they become very anxious, which shows how brave they are. And that's another subject we can talk about another day. So there they are. And then here's the people who, remember, have pretty much completed the course. They're not experiencing significant levels of anxiety. It's way down, whereas the other group are showing it. So whoopee. OK. So that's panic and agoraphobia. Having, you know, I've continued to do that work. But the other thing I've been interested in really throughout my career is obsessive compulsive disorder. And we've done a huge amount of work on that. And I'm not going to tell you all about it. Just going to tell you some of the therapy bits. Um, and one of the things that's going on, in, has been going on for a long time in the field of psychological therapies, is the thing called the Dodebird verdict, which says basically it doesn't matter really what you do. 
it's all in the therapeutic alliance. Um, it's, you know, and if you have a nice therapeutic alliance with people, then you'll get better anyway. And, you know, and, and it's all this thing called non-specific factors. Now, we don't believe this, because actually we think it does, that's not true for specific phobias. I don't think it's true for OCD. But we tested it in, in a way. We, we kind of didn't set out to test this, but this is what actually happened. We were looking at obsessive compulsive disorder, which involves intrusive thoughts and <coughs> impulses. And the group that I'm looking at first are people who have obsessions um, without any obvious um, physical compulsions. So they have thoughts, for example, that they might harm someone, but they don't check, they don't, they don't wash. They do do things inside their head, by the way, so there are things called neutralizing, but you can't see them, and it's quite difficult to stop them. So at the time we did this study, there was no treatment um, for um, obsessional thoughts. Now, sorry, no treatment for obsessional thoughts per se. Um, the theory that was driving what we're doing is the cognitive theory, which says basically that everybody has unacceptable thoughts which upset them. Again, I invite you to think about the last time you stood on top of a tall cliff or in front of a, in, 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 on a platform as a train is speeding in and think about, think about whether you might have had a thought that you might jump, in, jump over the cliff or in front of the train or better still, push someone else um, and so on. And when these intrusions occur, people are sensitive to obsessional problems um, believe they might be responsible for harm, and what they do is they try to fix it. They use these things called safety-seeking behaviors, like you know, backing away from that and so on. And what happens is that their response involves trying too hard. So they try too hard to get rid of the thoughts that are bothering them. They try too hard to prevent harm. They try too hard to be sure. They try too hard to be clean. And again, we're back to behavioral excesses, and this, I think, is what's characteristic of OCD. And what happens is as time goes on, the solution becomes the problem. The things that people with OCD do dominate their lives. And the person is worried about contamination and washes. It's not the contamination that stops them doing things. It's, it's actually the amount they have to wash uh, and so on. So what we did was we did a randomized trial, small randomized trial. And we, we assessed people. We then allocated them to one of three groups. Waitlist, just to see how they're going to do if they get nothing at all. Waitlist people get the two treatments later. Cognitive behavior therapy, which focuses on dealing with things according to the theory I just showed you. And uh, uh, something that we thought would convince people that we're getting good treatment. So we basically said to people, look, obsessions, obsessional worries, they're a kind of worry. And actually, like all worries, you know, they they're to do with stress. So we're going to help you deal with stress. And we're going to help you by teaching some relaxation. And if you have problems with problem solving, we'll teach you problem solving. And we put together a personal package for each person, which is designed to reduce stress. And then after treatment, we did, we did an assessment and follow-up. And um, all I'm going to say here is simply that these two, we were successful in doing what we wanted to do because not only were the treatments the same length of time, but the expectations that patients had from the treatments once they understood them were equivalent. So one of the things that's very important is if you offer somebody a treatment, there's a placebo effect. You know, and if you think this treatment is very good and will work for me, then, um, you know, th then you're more likely to see an improvement. And what we were showing is at the end of session two, whether you were doing the stress management or the cognitive over therapy, the expectations were the same. And here's the results. Here we have, and here this looks like a failure of CBT, doesn't it? So here's the baseline, and this is three months, which is the end of treatment, then a year later. And here is cognitive behavior therapy, and they improve a bit, but look, the stress management package did much better, <coughs> significantly better. And that's the wait list. So what's going on? Well, what's going on is this is, of course, not their obsessions. This is their general anxiety. This is a physical symptom of anxiety. 
And the stress management package did what it said on the tin. It made them feel less stressed. But look what's happening at the follow-up. The CBT people have continued to improve. The stress management people have fallen back. And the reason they've fallen back, we think, is because the stress management package didn't do very much for their obsessional symptoms. The cognitive behavior therapy did much better, and it continued to be better a year later. Now, this is important because it says that actually with similar expectations, similar th the same therapist, not, not similar therapists, the same therapist, everything is the same except this specific technique. And you have a treatment that's doing something that's affecting people, you still get a better outcome when you're focused on the thing that matters, which for OCD appears to be the misinterpretations they have. <clears throat> Now, one of the things which I've mentioned already, the idea of exposure, and, and, and of course people often say, well, surely it's just feel the fear and do it anyway. Shouldn't we just you know, find a way of you know, popping people in a straitjacket and getting them out there to confront the things they're afraid of? Um, and I'm just going to very briefly describe the study that, that's not yet published. Um, and we, were, we really wanted to know whether cognitive behavior therapy for OCD with a cognitive framework was better than or not as good as or, or equivalent to <laughs> Um, habituation-based, so a pure behavioral um, theory. So it's a bit like the agoraphobic study we're putting in the cognitive elements. At the end of session two, for a behavioral treatment versus a cognitive treatment, bo both patients, both sets of patients think that um, the treatment is logical, that they, they have similar expectations of outcome, and they would recommend the treatment to a friend. But in terms of the treatment outcomes. Here's baseline, here's the end of treatment, six month and one year follow-up. Basically, there's a significant improvement for everybody, but the people who have the cognitive component are doing significantly better all the way through than the people who have the behavioral component, despite everything else being the same. And there's a further twist to this. It's not a twist, it's what we'd expect. If you just look at compulsions, then the cognitive condition does better. But it does better, better when you look at the obsessions, at the thoughts. So the treatment is not just affecting behaviors. The biggest difference occurs when we're looking at thoughts, which is not surprising because that's what the treatment is targeting. Now, I'm going to give you some problems. And the problem here, this is, um, this is a study by Blake Stoby and myself. Um, and it's to do with obsessive compulsive disorder. And it's the thing which I've referred to with my friends in, in, um, in OCD UK as a scandal. Um, and the, the problem is that the average age when people start to have obsessional problems, this is just two samples, so just think of the same, is about between 15 and 16. The point when it actually meets diagnostic criteria, interferes with life, is around 20. Now, so far, so entirely understandable, but then the time when people first seek help, first actually go to their GP or, 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 or someone else, unfortunately, is a good four years later. And the time when it's correctly diagnosed is a couple of years later. And actually, the thing I want to point out to you is that between here and here, you know, and given the age of onset is around 16, we're looking at, you know, we're looking at pieces of time when people's lives have been blighted and destroyed and where they're not forming relationships, getting jobs, and so on. And the big problem with this, leaving aside the stress of this, is that we're doing something pretty horrible by not actually getting to these people. Um, early enough. So, basically, we're clear about what the problem is. There's a the number of other problems, too, which I'll also refer to, but the question is, what are the solutions? And I'm going to do this in the good news, bad news. I wish I could tell you, I have several jokes I could tell you, but there's not time. So I'll just do good news, and the bad news, and none of, the, none of this bit's are jokes. The good news is that 
when myself and my colleagues have done a series of studies, the studies we've, we, we've clustered together and called Tales of the Unexpected, it turns out that the age at which you develop OCD doesn't make any difference to how well you treat it. In fact, people who develop OCD before the age of 12, as Claire Lomax and I picked up, um, get a significantly bigger improvement than people who have an onset after 16, but they start higher, so they end up in the same place. Just having comorbidity um, doesn't actually um, prevent people from improving. In fact, there's one type of comorbidity, obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, which means that people respond better, not worse, probably because they're perfectionistic. Um, so there's, in the way they do their treatment. Um, the, and, and so you know, we, we, can do, we can do fantastic treatment, and there's not very much that stops us from doing it. But the bad news is this delay, and this thing, let's call it collateral damage. Um, Claire Lomax called it the human cost. And it's not, that pe not just that people are suffering for all this time, but then they get better, but, but the fact they suffer for a long period and lose enormous pieces of important things in their lives. But the good news is the treatment is highly effective. I mean, if you do this properly, and if you, if, you, if you focus it well, then I believe that every single person who suffers from OCD can get better. Sometimes it takes longer. You know, and the standard protocols we have, 12 sessions, are not enough for some people. And sometimes you need up to 50 sessions to get people better, but they all get better. But the bad news is that the treatment most commonly offered is not appropriate. It's often you know, very, you know, very kind of inappropriate. The, Blake Stobie and I did a study in our highly specialist national clinic, the clinic I was clinical director from, and we looked at people referred to us by other trusts who said, you know, this, this patient has had cognitive behavior therapy at least two goes, and you know, they haven't got better. And then when we went into the details of what they had, people said, yes, I had cognitive behavior therapy. It involved lying on a couch and talking about my childhood. And actually, 16% of people had minimal levels. So of the 100% of people who should have had good CBT, only 16% had. So actually, we did very well with those guys. Thank you very much. The good news is there are lots of new ways of working. And again, Victoria Oldfield um, and, and a whole range of my colleagues and I have worked on intensive treatments where, where and I, had a, I had a patient who described this beautifully. She said she was going to write her autobiography, and she was going to call it 22 years and 16 days. What does she mean? Well, 22 years was how long she had OCD. 16 days was how long it took her to get rid of the OCD. Working like a Trojan, that she, was, that she essentially did nothing else other than work on her OCD with lots of input from myself and my colleagues. But the bad news is that as we've now developed programs like that, absolutely excellent improving access to psychological therapies, there is, a, there is a, a, an interesting set of pressures developing because... IAPT, Improving Access to Psychological Therapies, offers people low-intensity therapies and high-intensity therapies, but it's actually at the kind of lower end of things. Lots more people coming in, lots more people therefore failing treatment. And unfortunately, with the shrinkage of health service monies, and I know it's not truly a shrinkage, uh, Mr. Cameron, but, but, but with whatever it really means, it means that we've got more people who need, who need highly specialist treatments and less highly specialist treatment available. That equation does not work. We are, and we also know from the research in this that stepping people up, moving people who haven't done well with low intensity treatments to high intensity gives you much better outcomes. We've got a problem, I think. And I, unfortunately, I have no good news for that. Um, oh, yeah, no, I have, sorry. <laughs> Early intervention works well. And, and, and let me give you one example of this. Fiona Chalicum um, and myself. Fiona and I were very interested in the fact that OCD is a lot about responsibility. So in, in OCD, um, we see a particular pattern of 
early onset, which is women and men, actually, having a new baby. So what we did was we looked at six consecutive cases treated with intensive, that high-intensity chronic therapy. These are women who we identified through maternity units. Um, now, they don't have a lot of time because baby keeps you busy, so actually the intensive works very well for them because granny comes for a few days and looks after the baby. Um, the infants were you know, medium-sized. We delivered four treatments, typically at home. Sorry, we delivered, no, we delivered a week's worth of treatment. Four of those were at home, two were in the clinic. Here's what happened. This is a self-report measure of obsessive-compulsive symptoms. They all got better. It's fantastic. And not only they got better, they got really, really better. And more than that, when you asked them, um, how, much, how well did this help their OCD? Then we got a particular answer, which is across the board, they thought it did really well. But we also asked them, how did it help your parenting? And the good news is that not only did they feel better in terms of their OCD, but they felt they were better parents. They felt they were shit parents before because they were spending so much time washing and, uh, and so on. I promised I wouldn't swear today. There, I've just broken it. Um, okay. So what that suggests is that there are various strategies. That's just one of the strategies. There are other strategies which I think we're really excited about actually developing to intervene way before the seven-year gap uh, goes. I want to be able to, to, uh, to intervene early. So let me finish by talking about health anxiety. And health anxiety is another treatment which I've been involved in for years. And we, we've done a whole road of, of studies. There are now, I think, six randomized controlled trials. Um, and what we've got, what we showed, this is back, this is British Journal of Psychiatry, 1998. We showed that if you could do a wait list uh, compared to a cognitive therapy uh, treatment and the stress management package of the kind I talked before, then both the stress management and the CBT works, but the CBT work best of all. So that's fine. That's jolly good. Um, now, one of the issues is this thing called dissemination. You know, people say, well, Paul Shelkovsky and David Clark can do this stuff. But can people from a less ivory tower type background um, do it? And so what we did was I was invited to go to Denmark, um, to Copenhagen, to do some training. And they said, well, how, about, how would I feel about going to traveling to Copenhagen about every two months or so to do supervision for them and so on? Now, somebody's got to do that kind of work, so I agreed to do it. Um, and you know, we, we then looked at 16 patients in this ordinary clinic and how they did. And what we found, very simply, is just six, the first 16 patients who walked through a door with health anxiety did exactly the same as the patients in our treatment trials. And then we said, good, we've shown that a non-research-based clinic can do it. And then the people in Denmark said, oh, no, no, this is a research clinic. You do research, so you're obviously a research clinic, which is one of these interesting paradoxes you come across. And it was kind of true because per, um, per um, not per thing, per, um, uh, per Soroson, uh, and Morton Burkett-Smith, I was working with, said, let's get, let's get some funding to do a trial. And so what we did um, was that we, we really did the same kind of thing, but we did a randomized trial. And the randomized trial basically involved treating people with either cognitive behavior therapy or the most commonly used form of psychological therapy in Denmark for that problem, which is brief psychodynamic psychotherapy. Okay, basically, bottom line is waiting list, Brief psychodynamic psychotherapy and CBT, and the psychodynamic psychotherapy, to our shock, did no better than waitlist on any measure. CBT did better than waitlist and psychodynamic psychotherapy. So, so this was published last year in Psychological Medicine. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, I want to finish by telling you about the future, and it seems to me 
that the health anxiety work, and myself and my colleague Nicole Tang, who's now at the University of Warwick, um, uh, have been extending it to chronic pain. We're, I hope, about to start a, a reasonably substantial program working with medically unexplained symptoms. Um, and they were also interested in long-term conditions. And let me tell you about um, a study which is not published. And this is appropriate because it's a, it's a publication which will come out um, from uh, Amy Hayter, who's a Declan Science student in London. I'm hoping that we'll have similar things happening locally. So basically what we did is we looked at 84, 84 consecutive people attending a neurology clinic with relapsing and remitting multiple sclerosis. Now, these are people relatively early on, and so they've got some symptoms, like things like tingling uh, and, and, and feelings of fatigue and so on, but no impairment. And what we did was that from that 84, we chose the bottom 21 and the top 21 in terms of how anxious they were about their health. And then we looked for benchmarking purposes at 21 people who didn't have multiple sclerosis, and we did three tasks. We did more than three, but there's three that I'm interested in. We tested their cognitive ability using two tests. One that people with multiple sclerosis score very badly on when they're further on in the disease. One that, makes, that isn't affected by multiple sclerosis and a physical endurance task. We also got, we looked at the extent to which they make misinterpretations. And so the first thing to spot is something that's not related to what I just said, is quality of life. So in these patients, the quality of life using the QLI, low health anxiety people and healthy controls have similar levels of quality of life. There's no impairment of quality of life. The high health anxious people are showing significant reductions, quite substantial reductions, in terms of their self-rated quality of life. They're not having a particularly good time with this. And if you control for um, the guy's measure, which is, which is essentially the extent to which they're affected by multiple sclerosis, it makes no difference. So it's not that these guys are more severe. It's just that the health anxiety seems to be taking it out of them. They are clearly, it's the health-anxious multiple sclerosis people who are misinterpreting not every symptom, but only the symptoms that are congruent with multiple sclerosis, things like tingling and dizziness, not incongruent. So the high health-anxious people are misinterpreting in the way that we think is important. When we look at their performance on, um, on this is a symbol digit modality test, it's a, a cognitive test, test essentially of ability to think uh, in a particular way, the Brixton, which is also a cognitive test, and the hand grip dynamometer, which is a test of fatigue, no differences. So the high health anxious and the low health anxious show no impairment at all in anything. They're completely fine. But if we ask them immediately after done these tests, how are you doing? The, the high health anxious group say, well, I did rather badly on that, much worse than I used to do, and so on. So they're not impaired, but they believe they are. And that's almost certainly where the quality of life is going, because they're misinterpreting what's going on in a particular way, which is, you know, which is horrible, but exciting, because it suggests that high health anxiety is associated with premature perceived disability, which means that possibly it could be preventable. Perhaps we can allow people to have a higher quality of life for a longer period, and that would be very exciting. We also think and I've recently been talking to various people, particularly Rick Cheston, about the possibility of applying this, for example, to, to early signs of cognitive impairment and dementia, because perhaps we can do something similar there. So I'm at the end, Bernie, so there, and, and Roger. So just my conclusions will be, 
I think we have a good understanding of both normal and clinical anxiety and the factors involved in the maintenance of these diagnoses and it, in a way that we never had before. We can use this understanding to rapidly and effectively treat clinical anxiety. But it's also much harder to deal with the consequences of prolonged untreated anxiety, meaning that the priorities need to expand to incorporate early detection and treatment. And that's partly what IPT is about. There's a worrying homogenization with the development of IPT, the one-size-fit-all um, idea behind therapy does not work terribly well, and we need proper stepped care, and not just cheapest and easiest treatment, and I think there's an important thing to be done there. Finally, prevention is now a strong possibility, and this is one of my research priorities, so I'm hoping um, to, to look at both early intervention prevention. The, I showed you the the work on, on expectant, uh, not expectant, on, on women who've recently given birth. We are just about to complete the randomized control trial to test that out. And if that works as well as the case series does, then it gives you really exciting ways of accessing a subgroup of people earlier. But we have to find ways of dealing with other subgroups. Thank you very much. And if you're busting for the loo, you can go. <laughs> yes, please. I'm intrigued how you feel that te well, whether technology can fit into this work. So I know that um, colleagues at UCL, for example, who work on social phobia using virtual environments, yeah. and others. And yes. to be honest, I've been, it's not my background, but I'm skeptical about some of that work, but they found some quite interesting results. And so I wondered how, whether you felt that technology in any way could be involved in this. And, whether that would be a way you'd go or not. The, uh, I mean, you're totally right. I mean, what you're referring to is the cave technology, isn't it? Where, and, and, and virtual audiences and so on. So you can, you can, you can put people in the situation, social phobics in the situation, where they, um, where they, uh, uh, you know, where you have, they're talking to an audience like you. But actually, at the touch of a button, the audience can go, uh, uh, or whatever, or smile and clap, or whatever. Uh, and you can get people to test various things out. Social phobia is a particularly good example of this because social phobia, like OCD, is really late to come to treatment. Why? Well, because in order to get treatment for your worries about you know, um, being in contact with people, you have to be in contact with people. So there's a kind of almost a paradox. And so David Clark um, is, is currently set up an internet-based treatment, which at its end involves um, people coming in. It involves a whole range of behavioral experiments and so on, so computer-based stuff. There's a caveat here. So with social phobia, I think that's right, and I think you know, virtual environments are okay. It doesn't work very well with spider phobia. So if you get, you know, get, you get sort of virtual, you, you're playing with um, a, a spider in, in a virtual world, but you know for sure <laughs> that, the, that, the, that the spider is not a spider. And so when people in those situations, they get slightly better, but not very much. And in fact, if you remember the study I showed you of self-exposure versus full exposure, the point I failed to make at that point was it's rather clear that having a person do it as opposed to just telling people to do it themselves makes a huge difference. And so the answer is 
Yes, technology has lots of things to do. It, it's, it, it's involved in step care. For some things, it may actually be the primary modality, as in social phobia, and some poss possibly some types of hypophobia. It, though, needs to be done on a guided basis. And, and what the research suggests is that guided self-help, including technologically-based stuff, um, is, is better than just, get, just letting the machine do the work. Now, that may not always be true, because, again, machines continue to be a bit primitive in this way. There are lots of other ways, but I, I don't want to take the entire time, but there are lots of other ways in which technology can help us you know, in, 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 in all kinds of, of useful ways of doing that. Another question or comment? Um, I guess um, the things you talked about were happened in the mind in this way. And at the end you said in the future you might look at MUS. Uh, MS, yeah, oh, medical MUS, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess that's crossing over into the body. Yes. Do you think that's going to present that crossover is going to present any special challenges? Uh, well, it's already happened. Firstly, let's say it's already happened. I mean, so so my colleague can't be here tonight. Kate Rhymes is an expert in working chronic fatigue, um, and chronic fatigue is clearly interesting case. Um, there's very good work on irritable bowel, um, headache, of course, pain. We've got Chris Eccleston floating around somewhere, don't we? I don't know where you've gone, Chris. But um, you know, work, lots of work on chronic pain. So we're already in there. And indeed, the mind and body, you know, the, there are, of course, special challenges. Most of the special challenges, I think, are probably cultural. You know, that, that, you know, that the expectation that you have a pill, you know, a biological treatment to deal with biological disease, which, by the way, is the impetus behind a lot of other things, such as the attempt to redefine things like OCD as a brain disease, as a biochemical disturbance, which the drug companies, big pharma, are really keen on for some reason. Um, and so, so this, so, and, and, and chronic fatigue is a good example of this, where chronic fatigue, also known as ME, divides people, and to the point where, you know, Simon Wesley, who's you know, one of the leading, leading kind of advocates of of uh, cognitive behavioral treatment for chronic fatigue has had bomb threats um, and his children have been threatened and so on. So I think the biggest issues are social and cultural. The reality is, I think the MS thing shows you that we have got crossover already. And in the end, you know, you know, although when you go into your doctor, you, you know, you, 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 the doctor will look you know, in, into your eyes and down your throat and so on, he also interacts with you and he will tell you stuff which is frightening or less frightening or, and so on. And actually a lot of what matters is that those little words which Susie Skevington you know, has done such a good job of exploiting, which is quality of life, and actually you know, improving in those areas doesn't necessarily mean you've improved people physically, but if you improve the quality of life, if you learn to live better with whatever it is that has afflicted you, then presumably that is a good outcome. I think that's a good outcome, and NICE recognised that as a good outcome, so it looks at the cost of treatments, and not in relation to symptomatic improvement, but to what it calls quality-adjusted life years. So, yes, there are special challenges. We've already dealt with quite a lot of them. And the biggest challenge, of course, is the one that we all know, which is money. Uh, you know, how do we deploy this? Because if you deploy, for example, treatments for medically unexplained symptoms, it's the biggest cause of medical consultation of all. Yeah, more consultations for medically unexplained symptoms than any other cause. Also, essentially, money is being spent at the moment on people's needs but not being met. But the trick within the health service is to save the money and spend it. And that, of course, is why things like IAPT have been so successful, where the mantra has been doing good and saving money at the same time. But lots of challenges. A final question? Um, I wondered if you'd come across 
Cold what, sorry? Tellington Touch. I'm afraid I haven't. Um, I, I'm a practitioner, I work with horses, and I've seen this work and I've done with people. Oh, I heard that this was on the Radio 4 yesterday, wasn't it? It's, it's and Simon Wesley was just a touch critical and said, there's no evidence. No, um, yeah. which is why I wonder if anyone's actually doing research into it, because the work that, that I do with horses, I can see the difference, the change in the horses. But now I've also spent the last couple of months working with a, with a really good friend of mine, and the, diff the difference it's had on her life in, in her mental state has been incredible. And yes. using ground exercises and body touches, and it's just been incredible. You sure. Yes. Yeah, I, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, use of ad animals as an adjunct to therapy uh, and includes this recent thing. But, but, but there is a note of caution, which is essentially that everything, including, you know, flower fairy therapy and, 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 and you know, aromatherapy, for some people will be associated with an improvement. One of the reasons why we rather boringly insist on randomized controlled trials is precisely to deal with that issue. Um, and so, you know, there are lots of things like that very important. I, th I think, I think the, the, the discussion there was the use of horses with veterans and, and talking about horses' ability to sense danger and so on. Um, but I think we have to be a touch careful, um, particularly with problems where we already have effective treatments. So gone are the days when nothing worked. Yeah. You know, back in the day, psychotherapy, basically, what used to happen, and, you know, my apologies, I know there are a couple of psychiatrists in the room, but there used to be the case that people, when I started as a clinical psychologist, said, yeah, you can do behavior therapy because, you know, nothing much does any harm. So nothing, nothing works for these people, so you can't really do any harm, talking about OCD. Um, and, and, of course, the, you know, what we now know is that actually you can do quite a lot of harm doing the wrong thing. So the, the work on, for example, debriefing following post-traumatic stress disorder, we actually know that if you do the wrong thing in the, it, for the right reasons, after people have experienced trauma, they get worse. Nobody notices because they just, they're kind of staying the same. They're getting worse. The same. But if you don't treat them, as shown in the randomized trials, they get much better much more quickly. So we have to be just a touch careful. The bottom line, though, for something like this, working with horses or anything else, if for an individual it is helpful to them, that's what you should do. If you're not doing any harm, then of course, for a particular individual, that's, that's what you should do. The question, though, is whether you should do that in preference to something else that we know works. And that's, again, the point of the NICE guidelines. The NICE guidelines basically say, here's the things which work. The, I was, I've been on the, the anxiety guidelines for NICE. And I'll finish with this, Roger. And just says, and one, of the, one of the things, you know, my wife sitting here um, you know, has known for many years that the best available treatment um, for... Um, for, for, for any kind of stress was chamomile tea, right? Chamomile tea. And actually the NICE guidelines group showed in the most recent, in the most recent round that the, the, the most potent um, pharmacological treatment or, or, or you know, sort of treatment of that kind um, for generalized anxiety is chamomile, delivered double-blind in capsules. It's not in the guidelines as a, a treatment recommendation because there was only one trial, very well-conducted trial. We need another trial to confirm it, but it, it produces much bigger effects than, than venlafaxine, um, fluoxetine, and so on in that one trial, so we need a second trial. So maybe we need a trial for, for this, although, again, yeah. I'm always a bit suspicious when we have a name attached to a therapy. I, you know, when we see Paul Shalkovsky's therapy, shoots me, because that, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's all right. Okay, I'd better, I'd better finish, but... Um, okay, I'm afraid time is up, and I'm sure we'll all like to thank you.